What's poppin' people? Welcome back to Sunday School. Sunday School is a show that airs every Sunday at 2 p.m. EST where we read through the Bible and we try to understand what God's Word means and how we can apply it to our lives. We've been reading through the book of Romans, which I think is a very important book in the Bible because it really explains what it is exactly that Jesus did through his life, through his ministry, his death and resurrection, and how that fits in with things like the laws of Moses and the Old Testament narrative. How does Jesus fit into that story? In the last episode, we started reading through Romans chapter 1, and most of what we read was just the introduction explaining who the author is, which we learn is the Apostle Paul, and why the Apostle Paul is writing and what he's writing about and to who he's writing to. Now, there was a lot of important information in that first episode, even though that might sound boring as a summary. So I suggest you go watch it because it'll help you understand what we're going to be reading today. Something that's very important with the book of Romans that I think a lot of people have trouble with is that they take a lot of things out of context. See, the book of Romans was written, as we learned in the last episode, as a letter written by Paul to the Romans. So it wasn't divided up into chapter by chapter. There were no verse markations saying this is the first verse, second verse, third verse. It was all just one you know, essay, essentially, with multiple paragraphs. And it was probably written on a scroll, so it was all on one piece of paper. But when we're reading the book of Romans today, we kind of fall into the trap of dividing things up into sections and categories and all this nonsense. And it really hinders our ability to understand what the book of Romans is actually trying to say. See, the book of Romans is one long argument, right? It has an introduction, then it has, you know, its body paragraphs, it has its different points and comes to an ultimate conclusion. And so to take out a particular section in the book of Romans and try to base some kind of doctrine or some kind of belief on it without reading the rest of the context and getting to the conclusion of Romans, it'll totally hinder your ability to actually, you know, believe the right thing. In this episode, we won't really have that problem because we're still in the first chapter. But as each episode progresses, it will be necessary to understand what it is we already learned. Because Paul in each chapter is building upon the last chapter. And he's referencing the information we learned in the last chapter that we would have read to make the next point that he's making in the next chapter. Now, in the last episode, we left off at verse 18. Romans chapter 1, 18 to 22, answers a question that many atheists ask. And that question is basically something like, you know, there's a million gods out in the world. You know, there's thousands of different religions. There's Buddhists, there's Hindus, there's Shintos, there's Muslims, there's the Greek pantheon, there's the Norse pantheon. The Native Americans, you know, they worshipped like nature spirits. Who are you to say that you worship the right God? 
Why is it that there's so many different religions? Why doesn't everyone have the same conclusion about God? And so what we're going to read today is going to be covering that question. Why are there so many different religions in the world? Where did these religions come from? What, what's their origin? How can we say that our God is the true God? So let's get into it. Four, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the first thing that he says is that the wrath of God, what is the wrath? That's like the judgment of God, the anger of God is revealed from heaven. And when it says heaven in the Bible, it's not necessarily meaning from the sky, right? It means like from God's throne room. Now, is God literally like in heaven, in the sky? Is he like some guy sitting on a throne in the sky? No. God is everywhere. So when when it's talking about heaven, it's more talking about the spiritual realm, you know, the mysterious realm, some other dimension. But his wrath is revealed from heaven to here against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. So he's making a statement here that we can see that people who do immoral things get punished for their immoral deeds, right? The wages of sin is death. And we, when we observe people's actions, we can see that like when we participate in the things which the Bible calls sins, you know, like being an alcoholic, you know, being a murderer, lying, that all these actions that are sins ultimately lead to death. And so the wrath of God is revealed to all people. But it says here that it's only revealed against people who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And in chapter two, we'll get a little bit more definition of what that statement means. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul's saying here that all people, all conscious beings and maybe even unconscious beings like animals and stuff we can all through observation of the creation around us we can see through all the beauty here that there must be a creator of this beauty that there must be a god right and that's obvious right all civilizations while they might not agree on the nature of God, while, while they might not agree, you know, what does God look like? Or, you know, if there's just one God or there's multiple gods, they all agree that there is a God. There is no civilization that is atheist. There are civilizations that have a different perception of God. They'll, they'll call them spirits instead of gods, but essentially it's the same kind of idea. 
But what Paul's saying is that not only can we understand that there is a God, but we can understand the particular nature of what kind of God it is, right? So if you really think about it and you really study and you really take the time to like philosophize about the nature of the world, you can come to the conclusion that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and infinite. How can we figure this out, you might ask? Well, there's a good argument that people call the Kalam cosmological argument. And I won't go too deep into it. But basically, it asserts that, you know, the universe has a beginning, right? And most people know that beginning is a big bang. I don't necessarily believe in the Big Bang, but whatever. But let's just say the beginning was the Big Bang. Well, we know that all things have a cause, right? All things that begin to exist, something causes them to exist, right? A baby begins to exist and they have a cause, right? And that cause is their mom and dad fricking. <laughs> so the universe has to have a cause, right? And a Kalam is just basically trying to point you to think about, you know, what would the thing that created the universe look like? Well, whatever created the universe has to be more powerful than the universe, right? Because the universe, right? Imagine it, right? Think of how massive the earth is. And then it's like, think of how massive the sun is. And then think of that compared, you know, you ever seen those videos where like they have all the different stars in the galaxy, lined up next to each other and you know you just see the size comparison and then it's like well there's billions upon billions trillions quadrillions maybe more stars in the universe there's black holes there's all kinds of things and the big bang posits that at one point all of this matter was contained into one little orb called the singularity right well, just like if you have a 20 pound weight, you have to be able to lift 20 pounds to lift the 20 pound weight. Whoever was able to move the universe has to be strong enough to do that. So he has to be unimaginably powerful. He has to be more powerful than anything we can observe in this universe. And that's basically like unquantifiable, right? And that's something that you could say is all powerful. And whatever this is must be outside of the universe, which means that he's infinite, right? He's not contained. He's outside of the containment zone of the physical material universe. So God's infinite. So, you know, we get the idea that there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite God. But it says here, not only can we understand the nature of the God, but it says we can understand the Godhead. What is the Godhead? Well, the Godhead is, from what I understand, in reference to the Trinity, the nature of God's personhood. That's what it means when it says the Godhead. So he's saying not only can we understand that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, but we can also understand that God is a Trinity. And some people might think that's not obvious, but just think of that question that atheists pose, right? They try to create this paradox. They say, can God create a stone that he cannot lift? And so they say, well, if God can create a stone, which he cannot lift, if God can't lift it, 
then he's not all powerful. And if he can't create a stone that he cannot lift, because that seems logically impossible for him to be able to do that, then he's still not all powerful because there's something he can't do. Many Christians say, well, God abides by logic and God can't do things that are illogical. But I don't like that answer because that means that there's logic that there's some kind of laws to the universe that God cannot break for some reason. But we know from John chapter 1 that God is the logic. He's the logos, which means that logic is kind of arbitrary. It's something that's made up by God. So I believe God can create a stone that he cannot lift, but that doesn't violate his all-powerfulness. And that's through the Trinity. The Trinity is the solution to this paradox. God the Father, who is totally all-powerful, omnipotent, can create a stone which Jesus, the God the Son, cannot lift, right? Because God the Son, he's a person. He's God, but he's God if he was a person. And we know that Jesus could suffer physical pain. He was even able to die. So Jesus, while he can perform miracles, He's still a human and he has human limitations. And so, you know, if God creates like a 300, 400, 500 pound rock, likelihood is Jesus couldn't lift that. So he's saying through simple, just, you know, thinking about things, observing nature, observing the beauty of this creation that we live in, we can understand who God is, what his nature is, and even the Trinity. So Paul says that, because of this, we are without excuse. If we don't believe in God, there's no excuse for us because it's very obvious. You know, I just walked you through the rationalizations that you'd have to go through to come to the conclusion of what the creator of the universe must look like, right? He has to be all powerful, all knowing because the universe is extremely massive. And whatever created it would have to be more massive, more powerful than it. And we figured out that he has to be a trinity because the trinity is the only logical solution that makes sense to the paradox, can God create a stone that he cannot lift? So we're without excuse if we don't believe in the Christian Trinitarian God. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So right here, Paul is answering the question which we posed at the beginning of this video. Why are there so many different religions who don't acknowledge God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the God of the Jews? If it's so obvious, why is it that most people don't believe it? And Paul says that people became prideful vain in their imaginations. So they started imagining things. They started coming up with theories of, you know, what would be cool for God, 
Maybe God has a bird's head. Maybe there's multiple gods. You know, they come up with all these conspiracy theories to say, maybe aliens made us. They come up with these images that look like the creation, that look like the things we see around us, that look like the four-footed beasts, you know, creeping things. You know, that's like evolution, you know, rather than saying that we were created by an all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God. Instead, they say, oh, maybe we're, we were created by other animals. So what he says there is that wise people, people who profess themselves to be learned, deny the most obvious facts about creations and come up with their own conspiracy theories and their own ideas of what God could look like, what, how we got here. And it's so clear because we, we see that today. You have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson making up all these crazy ideas about what God might look like. You have Jordan Peterson coming up with all these crazy ideas about God, what God looks like. And there's all these different religions too. And, you know, they're always portraying themselves to be these great wise men. You know, and so where, where do all these theories come from? It, it's, it's coming out of pride, says the Apostle Paul. It's coming out of vain imaginations. People trying to feel, basically people trying to craft God in their own image. Rather than conforming to the image of God, they try to make their own God. And through doing that, they are essentially saying we're above God, that they are above God because they came up with God. They discovered God. But the Christian God is, a, is not a God that we discover, but a God that discovers us. From the very beginning, throughout the whole biblical narrative, it's never people finding God. It's God coming down to find us. It starts with Abraham. Abraham, God visits him. Jesus comes to Peter and says, come follow me. Jesus comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, says, come follow me. He comes to Paul, says, Paul, follow me. And now he comes to us and he says, come follow me. Now this next part, it's continuing the same thought that we're on already, talking about atheists or pagans, basically false religions. And Paul is going to be making the point to show how clear it is that these religions are false. <clears throat> He's going to show the obvious evidence that these religions are false. That's self-evident without doing all this, you know, big-brained thinking about things. But what we're about to read, <clears throat> this little passage, is one of the most misconstrued passages in the Bible that's that's used to justify a huge heresy. The main person who you see professing this the most is a guy named Stephen Anderson, who's this uh, Baptist preacher, and he's really well known for hating gay people. And a lot of people like him. And I think some of what he says is right, you know, so I, I don't necessarily hate the guy. But he uses this passage to say that gay people are barred from heaven and it is impossible for them to ever come to know Jesus or ever be saved. And that's flat out wrong. That's demonic. That's satanic. 
But we're going to read what Paul says and we're going to see if it is saying that. Wherefore, what does wherefore mean? Wherefore is the King James Old English version of saying, because of what I just said, because of, right? So Paul is saying, because of what I just said, God gave them up to uncleanness. So because they denied God and they became atheists and they come up with these theories like evolution, because most people in all these different societies, they come up with these like strange religions because of these false religions, God has given up these people to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying there that because these people became atheists and started worshiping plants, worshiping animals, worshiping crystals. Because of that, God gives them up to uncleanness because they lie about God and God is angry with them. So he allows them to dishonor themselves. It says, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust with one another, men working with men that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meat." So what is this saying? It's saying that because they denied the truth of God, God lifted his protection from them and allowed them to follow the lust of their own heart. So they start following the lusts of their flesh, their lusts for sex, their lusts for drugs, their lusts for things. And in doing that, they become dishonorable, they become disgusting, they become gross. And this is the punishment for their sins, for their denial, for their atheism. God has punished them in this way. And the first thing that happens to atheists who deny the word of God is they fall into sexual perversion. So the first thing he lists is that women change the natural use of their bodies into that which is against nature. And we see this with the modern atheist world. I can't get too deep into it because I'm on YouTube and so I'll probably get banned. But we see, you know, women doing OnlyFans using, you know, plastic toys instead of, you know, and, you know, being single seeking out love and affection and attention on the internet rather than getting married, having children, and being happy. They, they change the natural use of their bodies into something that's against nature, that's perverse and sick. And same with men. But men in particular, what they start to do is not just doing weird, sick, and perverse stuff, but doing that with other men. 
and it says they receive the recompense of their error. So that means they receive the payment for their error. So this is like the punishment for them doing something wrong. And I think the punishment for them doing something wrong is sexually transmitted diseases, STDs. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, a lot of people, they like to give a definition to the word reprobate. However, I'm not going to give it a definition. I'm going to let the text that we're about to read define what the word reprobate means. And we'll see what Paul is actually trying to say. To do things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do those things. So many people say that the definition of the word reprobate means that they are incapable of changing their ways. They're incapable of repenting and they are incapable of being saved. And so what preachers like Steven Anderson say is that what this is teaching is that gay people cannot go to heaven because they're reprobate. And evidence of their reprobation, that they're incapable of repenting, is that they do gay things. Is that what Paul's saying, though? That's very strange if that's what he's saying. See, what Paul's saying, if we read the text, he's talking about all people who deny God. And he's saying that this is the natural state of human beings who deny God. What naturally occurs over time, it's not that we have a sinful nature, right? But it's just, this is what happens. This is the course of things. Atheists, while they do understand morality, while they do understand that there is a God and they do have an understanding of right and wrong, over time, because they do not truly believe there is a creator in heaven that's going to judge them for their actions, they give up their commitment to that morality. And so they start doing more and more sick and perverse things. And one of the first things that they give into is sexual deviancy. Paul's not talking about a special case, you know, a rare case of people. He's talking about everyone. He's talking about anyone who does not believe in God. That's just plain and simple obvious in the text it says that people who do not believe in God who change the image of God into a lie they will be given over to unnatural affections to dishonor their own bodies and this is obviously true this is what happens to all atheists you know you just look up genetically modified skeptic you just look at anyone who isn't a Christian and this is how they live their life you know they're they're full of they're full of maliciousness, you know. They they just do things to hurt people. 
They're, they're, they, they get a kick out of causing others pain. They have envy. They're jealous of people. They're constantly debating. They're constantly lying. They're constantly, you know, spreading rumors. You know, you can see that with Kino Casino. They're disobedient to their parents. And they take pride in people who do evil. They cheer on 10-year-olds that are twerking in the middle of the New York City pride parade for grown men who are getting dollar bills thrown at them. And if that text isn't proof enough for you, I can just give my own testimony. When I read that for the first time, I couldn't help but see that that was talking about me. Before I was a Christian, that whole passage there perfectly describe my life down to the T. You know, I was unmerciful. I was constantly gossiping. I was so proud of myself. I, I mean, I was insecure, but I was constantly bragging, boasting about myself, talking about all kinds of sick things, like how big my members are and all this. You know, I, I was constantly gossiping. I was constantly I was very malicious and vindictive and I would go out of my way to hurt people so that I can make myself feel better about myself. I would never be able to keep a promise. I was the flakiest person ever. And I also tried to encourage people to do evil things and to pursue sick and perverse things. And on top of all that, I used to be a sodomite, a homosexual. But Jesus, after I came to understand what Christianity was actually all about and who Jesus actually was and what God did for us through Jesus, I was set free from all of that. I was just able to drop homosexuality. I was just able to drop, you know, my sick perversions. I became a loving person. I actually began to have compassion for others. I guess maybe Steven Anderson can say that I'm lying about my own testimony and that I'm actually secretly still doing all this sick stuff and I'm just like trying to lead people astray or something with what I'm teaching. Who knows? But I know from my own testimony and the testimony of dozens upon dozens of people who have reached out to me to talk about things that even a homosexual, even someone who is reprobate, can be saved. But what's the point that the Apostle Paul is making? Not the point Stephen Anderson or me is making. What is the Apostle Paul trying to say? Well, he's saying that these false religions are evidently wrong. And the evidence that they're wrong is because people who follow these false religions have no commitment to morality. They do sick and perverted things which they even know are wrong and can acknowledge is messed up but they don't really feel bad about it they still do it anyways even though they know it's wrong and they end up catching stds they end up dying they end up falling into total despair and you know sometimes suicide or mur they get murdered they get killed and when you look at all these false religions that's what happens to all these people. That's that's where they that's where they all lead to. They all lead to degeneracy. And that makes it blatantly obvious that those religions are false. So to wrap this all up, what have we learned from Romans chapter 1? Well, what we've read here today is Paul's first point in his argument 
that he's going to be constructing through the rest of Romans. And again, each chapter of Romans, each argument is building upon the last chapter and the last argument that he made. Each sentence is building upon the last, each paragraph, each passage building upon the last. And he's coming to an ultimate conclusion. And what he's trying to explain through this letter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first point that he's made today is the first thing that is necessary. It is the most necessary thing that we have to establish in order to understand the gospel. And that point is that God is real. The point that Paul's trying to make is that God exists and the God that created all this isn't a Greek God. It's not a Norse God. It's not Buddha. It's not the Hindu gods. It's not whatever Japanese Shinto believe. It's not Allah. It is Yahweh, the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians. And he says the evidence for God is twofold. The first evidence is that by just simply observing creation, we can understand that God must be all-powerful, all-knowing, and infinite. And the only God that fulfills those characteristics is Yahweh. And the second argument is that there is a universally observable morality. And when you observe all of these false religions, they all lead people into degeneracy. And the only religions that don't lead people into degeneracy is Christianity. People who truly follow God aren't falling into these sick, degenerate ways. So in the next episode, we're going to be getting into Romans chapter 2. And Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3, they're going to be covering the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses and how they fit into the story. And that's the next logical point, right? We know God exists. Now we need to know what does God expect of humanity? And that's going to be covered in chapter two. So anyways, that's all. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next Sunday.